Hello, Woodland Hills. I was going to say it's so good to see you, but I can't see you. So it's so good for you to see me today. So I'm really glad that you're seeing me today. I'm glad that you're part of what's, what God's doing here uh, this morning. I need that at the very beginning because uh, I'll forget if I postpone it at all. Um, I told Bruxy Kavi of the uh, meeting house in Toronto that uh, I would pass this on. Uh, we talked last night, and he wants Woodland Hills to know that the meeting house has felt called to just have concerted prayer for us. Uh, prayer that um, uh, Spirit will be leading us and empowering us through this time, and that we'll rise up to play whatever role that God would have us play in the new thing that God's doing here uh, in, in, in the church. And uh, yeah, so thank you, meeting house. We love you guys. Love you guys. Appreciate that, that prayer covering. Uh, today, the main passage we'll be looking at, if you want to get a jump start on this, we'll be reading from Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. So you can start trying to find that if you want. This last week has been, uh, this last two weeks has been so, actually this last eight weeks has been so, <laughs> man, uh, I, 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 I want to get to the message, so I, I'm not going to say too much about this, but I, I just want to say this. Um, yeah, Charles Dickens said, I think it was Charles Dickens, wasn't it? Uh, this, this is the best of times and the worst of times. And I don't think by any stretch of the imagination we'd say this is the best of times. We'd agree maybe it is the worst of times, but there is some really great God stuff that is going on. And, and uh, God, he promises to always bring good out of evil. Uh, and he's at work with that. Something about the, the murder of George Floyd, um, the diabolical clarity by which white supremacy showed its ugly face, has given an occasion for, for multitudes of people to see with a greater clarity than they had before the ugly face of white supremacy. I, I, I refer to it as the diabolical clarity. Uh, Bruxy refers to it as, he, he said, uh, it's like watching hate in slow motion. And it is. It's a, for, for you know, eight minutes, nine minutes, you, you're, it's seeing in slow motion this terrible, ugly thing. But see, God's using the clarity of that to do something uh, perhaps unprecedented. Um, you look around the world and, and, and folks are, I mean, this has hit a chord. People have, it's like the curtain has been torn back, to refer to Wizard of Oz. And we're seeing for a moment at least the, the man behind the curtain. And folks seeing that are saying, that's got to end now. Now there are folks who will, you know, uh, he'll dismiss it as a one-off event. Well, okay, there's individuals, individuals, and they can't see the forest through the trees. But Many folks are seeing the forest through the trees. They're beginning to connect the dots. Here, here's a black man that white people have to believe. He said he couldn't breathe and he died. Uh, and, and here's a white officer that's undeniable in, in his inhumanity to this man. And, his, his, and, and you just see the face of white supremacy there. And the, the clarity of that, people are seeing that and they've got to, they just feel, I've got to do something. I've got to stand against that. And so, you know, in the 60s with Martin Luther King, the vast majority of people who went in the marches were African-American folks. Uh, some whites and others joined in, but it was primarily the African-American community. Whereas now what we're seeing is, I mean, the folks turning out to these protests is, are as diverse as humanity itself. That's a new thing. That's a new thing. And they're doing it in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's crazy. It's one day we're being very careful about, you know, social distancing, six feet apart, make sure you wear a mask, sanitize all the time. And you should be doing that. That's very important. But the next day, we're out in crowds, and we're shouting his name, George Floyd. And, and uh, I worry about the ramifications of that. I, 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 I suspect in a couple of weeks we're going to see uh, a spike, I suspect. Don't know, but 
It's possible. And it's possible that some folks who were protesting might die. Uh, I hope I'm not one of them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the thing is, is that, that you have to do it. I had to. It's like, this is wrong and, and you stand against it. And so people all over the place willing to put their lives at risk to some extent by gathering together and, and, and saying his name and protesting the injustice that, 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 that folks have seen. When I left, I was honored to be invited to George Floyd's funeral. And, and when I left there, after hearing that incredible sermon by Reverend L. Sharpton, um, Man, I, I have such pain about what's going on in the world, but in the core of my being, there was this hope uh, that I personally, I think I, I feel more optimistic about race relations in society and in the church than I have maybe ever. I think for sure than I ever have. Because uh, folks are seeing that there's something changing here. Uh, El Sharpton just nailed it when he, when he says, you know, there's a time and a season for everything, but this is the time. Um, you can sense there's a Teutonic, Teutonic plate shift going on. Something is altered. There's a new thing going on here. And if, Al, if folks like Reverend L. Sharpton and John Perkins and others who have their whole life been uh, having trouble breathing because of the white knee on their neck, if they can still have hope, well, then how can the rest of us not have hope? Uh, I, I, I just, this is a time. It's a unique time. You know, John the Baptist at one point said that the axe is being laid to the root of the tree when Jesus came into the world. The axe is being laid to the root of the tree. No more just like tinkering around and trimming and priming and all the rest. No, you're going after the root. And that's what it feels like is the time right now. Uh, the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. And we're getting at something foundational here. Uh, it's something huge. And what we're getting at is the white supremacy that is the disease that is in the root of the tree of this country of ours. And we've never laid the ax to that tree, to that root, in any kind of systematic way. Maybe poked at it here and there, but the ax is being laid to the root of the tree. And, and what we're going to see this morning is that, that to get at that tree, you've got to address white supremacy. And more particularly, you've got to address the white supremacy that has pervaded the church to a large degree, throughout its history. Um, I want to repeat something I said last week where I, I want to ask uh, white Christians, especially if you're watching this for the first time or you've never heard this message before, I don't know where your background, where you're coming from and all this, and I, I would just ask you, if you're a believer, to try to, however this works for you, try to get all your life from Christ, your worth, your significance, what makes you feel good about living, feeling fully alive, all of that should be anchored in what God thinks about you as revealed in the cross. And I, I would encourage everyone to be getting their life from Christ, but in particular, I want to ask my white sisters and brothers to, to be cautiously doing that. Because if I'm getting all my life from Christ, see, I, then I don't have to be getting it, trying to get it from my whiteness or from my rightness. And in this country, those two have too often been synonymous. To be white is right. Um, but see, if someone says to me, you know, you, are, you speak from a privileged perspective that skews the way you look at the world and you don't see some things that, you know, you're blind in some ways. If someone says that to me and I'm getting all my life from Christ, my response should be, that might be true. I should check that out. I don't have to get defensive. I don't have to like, no way, how dare you? I don't have a perspective. I just see things as they are. You don't have to, we're, white folks are socialized, as I said last week, into having this incredible trust in the basic goodness of the system. And so we have, we're socialized into having all sorts of self-talk that protects the goodness of the system. We, it's our auto-response. And so when we're challenged or whiteness is challenged or the system is challenged, we tend to have all these, yeah, what about da 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 and we, and we just, and for Christians, what they can sometimes look at, is, it look like is this. You talk about race relations and the need for that in the church, and 
all of that. And, and what some Christians will hear is, well, that's, that's, that, that's liberal stuff. That's political correctness. Boyd's selling out to political correctness. That's identity politics. There you go. Yeah, just going into it. Uh, just trying to be trendy. Or a uh, new one I heard this, the other day was uh, your, your, your uh, virtue signaling, which I'm not quite sure what that means yet, but it's something negative. Huh? But uh, um, yeah, it just gets dismissed. And what I want to show here this morning is to, so, to help us see that this call to be uh, to work towards the unification of humanity, to recapture the one race that God created, that call is absolutely front, middle, and center in the Bible. In fact, we see here this morning that it's one of the reasons for which Jesus died. Um, and to fail to preach this and live it is, I'll submit to you, it's, in fact, this, here's the title of this message. It's the great white heresy. Because uh, it has been refrained from being preached throughout much of uh, church history. Uh, if if you've been around Woodland Hills for any length of time, you've probably heard this message or something like this message before. Uh, I've done it a, a number of times at different junctures, but I encourage you to keep on, don't check me out, because, keep listening to this because this is the kind of message that not only bears repeating, but it requires repeating. Uh, and, and it could be that, that the events of the last two weeks might position you to hear the message Differently than you've heard it before, maybe more deeply than you've heard it before. I'll tell you this. The last two weeks, uh, well, I'm preaching this message with a clarity and a uh, fire that I didn't have before. So I'm seeing things I didn't see before. We're all in process on this. And on that note, I want to say that as I'm talking about the white church, uh, I don't want to just whitewash it all as being one thing. There's, you know, it's not. It's got its own diversity. Uh, but... So I'm not trying to include, you know, there's been branches of the church that, that aren't included in this. But mainly I got myself in the crosshairs. As a white person, I know that this message is about me and I need to hear it again and again and again. The question I want to, this may seem irrelevant, but it's absolutely centrally relevant. And, and, and it's the question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? This is, this is the doctrine of the atonement. Um, and in Protestant theology, there's a number of answers that are given to this and different emphases and whatever. But in general, the main answer to the question of why Jesus died that is given is that he died so that people can go to heaven instead of hell. Uh, Jesus died to fix the God-human uh, uh, problem. And that's pretty much it. So if you pray this prayer and whatever, then, then, then you have this kind of assurance. And what I want us to see this morning is that while that is certainly true and important, that's not the, the full answer to the question, why did Jesus die? Um, to get at a full answer, I, I, I'll just read one passage of Scripture, and now we're coming to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, now, you know that, 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 that Woodland Hills is a really biblical church um, because uh, we, we, we know how to, to, to rightly divide the word, all right? So we, <laughs> okay, I couldn't find my, my NRSV Bible. Um, I tried to look for it on Tuesday, and I, I don't know, I, I think I left it at one of the protests or something, I don't know. But, um, so here's, here's my old study Bible, and it is seen better days, but it still works. All right, so here's a go. Here, here's a go. So then, starting with verse 11. Paul says, so then remember that at one time you Gentiles, you Gentiles by birth, you are called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circ circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, I want you to remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now, he says, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of the cross. For he, Christ, is our peace. And in his flesh he has made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commands and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity. He is our peace. He creates in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, bringing shalom. He did this that he might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. Why did Jesus die? Yeah, he died so that individuals can be reconciled to God and, and, and enter into this marriage-like covenant. That is salvation. That's absolutely true and important. But he died, he died not just to reconcile humans with God, but humans with humans. And you know, Paul's a first century Jew. For him, the, the paradigmatic division in humanity, the, the basic divide is between Jews and Gentiles. And so to fix the divide between Jews and Gentiles, since that's the ultimate divide, is to, is to fix everything underneath it. It's to fix, in general, the walls that divide people. And so Jesus died to tear down the walls, all the walls that divide people. The cultural walls, the prejudice walls, the historical causes that have led to fissures and separation between people. He, he died to tear down the, the hierarchies of structure that privilege some over others. He died to create one new humanity. Uh, which is God's dream for humanity from the start. One new humanity, and this humanity is to be free of those walls, free of that hostility. This humanity, in all of its beautiful diversity, is a humanity that's supposed to, in the way that we treat each other and reflect on each other and listen to one another and serve one another, that humanity is supposed to reflect the love of the triune God. We're made in God's image, individually and collectively, to do that. Jesus died for this. So it's part of the atonement which makes it central to the Christian faith. Now, to really appreciate the force of this passage, I, I'm going to do a really quick kind of a biblical history review here. And I want to see that uh, Ephesians 2 is fulfilling a central storyline that runs throughout the whole Bible. So let's start by going back to Genesis 1. Uh, there you find that God made human beings in his image. Uh, all human beings are made in the image of God. Let us make humans in God's image. There's one race. There's not like races. There's one race. In fact, that's still true. Races, the idea of plural races is a, a white Western construct thing that was created in the 17th, 18th century to justify treating other human beings as non-human. They, they ranked them according to races. But see, biblically speaking, there's one race. And so we, we really, we, we maybe shouldn't talk about racial reconciliation as though these races were once reconciled. These races are a, a symptom of us not being reconciled. Uh, some have suggested that we, we speak about race conciliation. We're not trying to reconcile the races. We're trying to get rid of that whole construct to get all together to reconcile the race. So I'll refer to race reconciliation. Um, and, and, and there in the Bible, everybody is in the image of God. And it's amazing when you put it in its ancient Eastern context. Because to say image of God, only one person in the ancient Eastern countries was allowed to be called the image of God, and that was the king. He's in the image of God. No one else is. This author says, no, all of them are in the image of God. All of them are kings and all of them are queens. It means that we are created for royalty. But we're created to rule with God on the earth. And you find that, that that's still God's vision and plan for humanity. We're supposed to rule over the earth and the animal kingdom. But we're not supposed to ever rule over one another. 
That's why Jesus says at one point in Matthew 20, he goes, you know, the Gentiles, they lord over one another. They fight over who's going to be boss, who's going to get their way, whatever. Not so among you. It's not going to be that way among you. No, uh, here the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So this is God's dream for humanity. Now, that, 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 and, and, and if you're looking for, like, is this biblical to be concerned about the welfare of other people, boom, you've got it. If I, if I stopped right now, you'd have reason enough to care about anything that ruins this one new humanity, that divides us, that subjugates some to others. Uh, the call for, for biblical justice is right here in the first chapter of the Bible. But that dream, of course, as most of you know, gets fragmented. Uh, in the story of, of, of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. And then that divides them from one another. God's beautiful marriage programs turned into a warfare. Uh, and then, then we find that throughout Genesis 4, the violence escalates. It goes on from Adam and Eve. And then they have Cain and Abel. And Cain kills Abel. Uh, and the blood of Abel cries out from the ground because, uh, you know, Unjust spilled blood always cries out from the, the ground until justice is, is, is done. And from there, the violence continues to escalate until finally we get to the point of the flood, which the basic storyline there is that our corruption and our violence brought corruption and violence to the whole earth to the point where God had to start his project over again. The dream had failed. So God's going to start over again. Not too long after that, after the flood story, we find this story of the Tower of Babel. And scholars will debate about, is it intended to reflect actual history or is it an allegory that's, that expresses spiritual truths or whatever? doesn't matter right now because the, the important point of that story is that when human beings, we were trying to unite to build this tower to God. Uh, it's a tower that we know actually exists in the ancient world called a ziggurat. And, and it had this, you know, the, 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 the connotation that we are exalting ourselves to the heaven. And, and the story is saying that when human beings try to unite against God, it always just further divides us. It, it, our, our ability to be united is, uh, this relationship can only be uh, healthy to the degree that this relationship is healthy. Uh, the two go hand in hand. You find that throughout the whole Bible. So now, now humanity has different languages and they're scattered throughout the earth and they're divided. And then God begins the program of bringing us back together again. It starts in the next chapter in Genesis 12. God calls Abraham, and Abraham's going to be the, 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 the father of, of the, the Jewish nation, and the Jewish nation is going to be God's chosen people. But, but uh, look what it says here. It says, I'm calling you Abraham here. I, I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you, and, and everyone that uh, I, I'm blessing you to be a blessing, so whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you will be cursed, uh, but you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, just look at this. He's calling Abraham. He's saying, yeah, I'm going to bless you. You're going to in some way be my, my favorite, but you're going to be chosen not, not just to be blessed, but to be a blessing. And the, the nation that will come after you is going to be the means by which I am going to bless the whole earth. God has, the, his vantage point is for the whole planet to be blessed by the descendants of Abraham. And you find that repeated again and again and again. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Um, yeah, 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 this idea of being chosen, this concept you find throughout the Old Testament, its original meaning was you're chosen for a vocation. And it's an honor to be chosen for that vocation. There's a blessing to be chosen for that vocation. But it is a vocation. And the vocation is the mission to draw all the peoples of the earth to Yahweh. And so you find this refrain going on over and over again. That, that the Lord's saying, I will uh, use you. You're going to be a, a nation of priests that are going to reach the whole world. A royal priesthood, he says. And, and, and all the nations of the world shall someday gather around Zion and, 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 and worship Yahweh. Some constant motif that we find going on. So the Lord here is, is, is calling his people. And it's also why I'll say this, that 
You find this strong emphasis throughout the Old Testament on the need to care for the foreigner and the stranger, the non-Israelite in your midst. Treat them to say as if they were one of you. Uh, in a million different ways, God's always pushing back on the walls that divide the Jews and the Gentiles because the Jews were to be the means by which the Gentiles come to have faith in Yahweh. It's a pervasive theme. It's the storyline of the Bible. The, the fragmentation of humanity and how God's going to now reunite humanity. What's amazing is that to a large degree, that strong motif has been absent from the Christian narrative, the American Christian narrative of what the gospel is all about. It's been overlooked. Now, there have been groups that got it, praise God, and, and they were the ones who were, who were fighting against slavery and, and, and all the rest. But by and large, the dominant narrative has excluded, maybe not totally excluded this message, but has not seen the centrality of it. In fact, some passages that are central to that storyline get co-opted for other purposes or they just, you don't notice how central they are. I'll give you one example. Uh, in Isaiah 55, we read this. The Lord says to his people, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Now, the only time I've heard that verse quoted, pretty much my whole Christian life, it's quoted to, whenever someone needs to justify nonsense, this is the passage you want to quote. Uh, whenever you find yourself, you know, checkmated in a theological argument. This is, this is your mystery card. Some people, you know, play the mystery card. Well, you know, I, God is love, uh, perfect love, and yet he predestines the majority of people to suffer eternally in hell. A lot of Christians believe that. Uh, you go, well, then how is he a God of love? If that's the God of love, show me the God of hate. What does he do? Because this is kind of nasty. Well, you know, God's ways are not our ways. His love is higher than our ways. You know, our love would include everybody, but God's love is higher, so he excludes a bunch of people. I, we use it to, to, to justify nonsense. Now, if you look at the original context of this passage, you get a kind of a different, it leaves a different kind of impression. Go to verses 1 and 5. It says this. The Lord says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have got no money, no problem. Come, buy and eat. Of course, you can't buy if you don't have any money. He says, it's free. It's free. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's a free-for-all. And then in verse 5, he says, see, look, you shall call nations. He's talking to Israel, his people now. You shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God, the God of Israel, he has glorified you. Uh, here the, the Lord is saying... Someday that mission that I've given you is going to be fulfilled. Uh, God's plan was to beautify his people, to let, have some of his glory shine through his people so that the rest of the world would see it like a beacon of light and run towards it. Now, the Jewish people had not been doing that very well, much like the church. Instead of serving the world that they're supposed to be calling and, and, and being priests to, instead of that, they began to look down on folks and begin to judge the folks and disdain the very folks that they were supposed to be serving, much like a lot of the church does. And so here Yahweh is correcting them. And he's saying, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. But he's not saying play the mystery nonsense card whenever you're in a theological argument. He's confronting Israel for its limited thinking about people. He says, your ways are ethnocentric. 
but my ways are just human-centric. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Your, your ways are limited, but my ways are unlimited. Your, your, your ways are, you think the covenant is just for you, but, but, but in, in my way of thinking, the covenant is for everybody. Your ways of thinking are, are about exclusion, but mine are about inclusion. You, your ways of thinking are us versus them, and them under us, but my way of thinking is us without the them. Uh, God's ways are higher than our ways. In essence, he's confronting Israel for what we today would call racism. You're supposed to be loving those people, not judging those people or trying to subjugate them or, or all the rest. It'd be a, a passage that would be centrally important for the American church to hear, given our history. And yet, for the most part, it's been used just to get out of arguments that you find yourself a fix in. And so it, it makes you wonder about this. How is it possible that this message so central, it's a part of the storyline. Jesus is fulfilling the central storyline of the Bible. In fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Israel was supposed to be. And so Israel, Jesus fulfills this mission of Israel. Um, that, that's why he says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all people unto me. He's doing what Israel was called to do. Uh, and that's why the church is it's called the new Israel. As we're incorporated in the body of Christ. Um, and so you've got to wonder, Jesus here fulfills this. And central to the storyline, Jesus died for this. And yet, the white church, let's say it straight, has missed it. And you ask, how? How is it possible? Um, I submit to you, I mean, there's a lot that could be said about that, historical, sociological explanations, whatever, but the central reason I think they missed it is because of what seemed self-evident to them, what seemed obvious to them. They missed it for the same reason they missed what it meant to say that all men are created equal. They meant, they ended up meaning more than they, they thought at the time. They thought, their assumption was that this refers, it was self-evident that it refers to white males, all white males are created equal. And it was so self-evident that it didn't need a footnote or a commentary or, or, or a qualification. It's just obvious. So it was obvious to these folks that, 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 that women were not created, created equal with men and that non-whites were created equal with men, namely non-whites. It was self-evident. It was that self-evidence that they got pseudo-scientific support for it with the science of eugenics. Some of you maybe know about that, but... Here's where they, they thought that they could judge the intelligence of a person and the, uh, the, the, the level of their, evol their race's evolution by their phenotypes, by their facial features. Uh, and, and it just happens to be that the, the, the more white-looking uh, a quote-unquote race, that's their word, was, the more highly evolved they thought it was. They thought there's like four races. And, and guess what? The, the white race is the supreme one. Now, Try not to notice the fact that it's all white male scientists who are doing the thinking around this, all right? A little bit self-serving, but that was, that was the idea that you could tell. It was just so obvious they didn't need to really argue for it. And so, so why'd they miss this? The only answer you can give, or at least the most profound answer you can give, the most meaningful answer you can give is that the white church was held captive by a false ideology of white supremacy that just blinded them to a whole lot of stuff in the Bible and a whole lot of stuff in the world. The church has been held captive to this. And part of the white supremacy system is that the whites don't notice the system. It's built in that way. I mean, the greatest proof of how blind a large segment of the white church has been throughout history is the fact that when slaves began to teach themselves how to read and began to read the Bible for themselves, they had no trouble seeing this. Not, they noticed it right away. It's right there. They, the, the, the faith that they got when they began to read the Bible on their own was radically different than the faith that the white slave owners had told them was in the Bible. Uh, read like Frederick Douglass, for example, uh, an incredible individual. 
and, and, and became a, a theologian. He starts reading the Bible for himself, and he just discovered that. I love, he says, what the Bible says. I love this truth, but it's nothing like what the white man told me was in this Bible. Uh, he, here's a, a, a piece that he wrote. Um, he was charged with, you know, being an infidel, an unbeliever, undermining the church, breaking law and order, and all the things that white folks have always said to uh, African-American folks when they think they're getting out of line. And he got all that. So he wrote in 1846, he wrote this article called A, a Response to the Charge of Infidelity, 1846. And, and just listen to what he says here. And uh, I've just given you a little snippet here. He says, I have... He first recounts the horrors of slavery, and it's hard to read, but it, he, he just recounts some of the things that have gone on. And then he says, I have to inform you that the religion of the southern states, that's the Christian religion, at this time is the great supporter, the great sanctioner of the bloody atrocities to which I have just referred. And then a little, little down the page he says, instead of preaching the gospel against this tyranny and rebuking this wrong, Ministers of religion have sought by all and every means to throw into the background whatever in the Bible could be construed in opposition to slavery and to bring forward that which they could torture into its support. They find verses you can twist to support this, this, this regime. He saw right through it. And then he says, I love the religion of our blessed Savior. I love that religion that makes it the duty of its disciples to visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction. I love the religion that is based upon the glorious principle of love to God and love to man, which makes its followers do unto others as they themselves would be done by. It is because I love this religion. Listen to this now. It's precisely because I love this religion that I find in the Bible when I read it for myself that I hate the slave-holding, the woman-whipping, the mind-darkening, the soul-destroying religion that exists in the southern states of America. It is because I regard the one as good and pure and holy that I cannot, regard, I cannot help but regard the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. He's talking about the Christian, white Christian church. Uh, loving the one, I must hate the other. He's talking about the institution, not hating individual whites, but you must hate that religion that's been used to keep in place this white supremacy system. Holding to the one, I must reject the other, and I therefore proclaim myself an infidel to the slaveholding religion of America. You want to call me an infidel? Fine, I'll proudly own it, but know what I'm an infidel of. It's that religion. And see, how is it that, that, that African-American slaves could, as soon as they learn how to read, see in the Bible what all these highly educated white theologians just missed? How is that possible? They had no trouble seeing. You know, the, the, the white people tell us that, that it's part of God's design that we're supposed to be subjugated to whites. But I read the Bible and it says human beings aren't supposed to be sub subjected to one another. Uh, I'm told that, that, that they, they, they tell us that, the white folks tell us that uh, we're created, that our, our lot in life is to be serving uh, white folks. But I read the Bible and it says we're only supposed to be serving the Lord our God. Uh, they tell us that, that it, it's our place to be under them. Uh, but I read the Bible and it tells, us that, tells me that there's one human race and that we're all created equal. And they tell us that part of God's design is, is bondage. It's captivity, slavery. That's just how the world works. But I read the Bible for myself and I see that slavery and bondage is of the devil. And Jesus came to set the captives free. They tell us that our worth is found in how much they can get at the auctioning block, the highest bidder. But I read the Bible and it tells me I've got unsurpassable worth because Jesus died for me. He died not just for white people's sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He ascribes unsurpassable worth to everybody. They found a totally different faith than what was being preached by the white church. How is that? It's a testament, I think, to, the, to how the white supremacy system has blinded us. And now the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. Uh, 
I, I think God could be using this tragic uh, murder of George Floyd to do something really profound here. I, it, it's to really get at this root. We've never really ser- seriously addressed this original sin of America. Uh, this is, in Greek, they have two words uh, for time. Chronos is one. That just means you know, normal time. We get the word chronology from it. But there's also this word kairos. And kairos is a unique time, a special time, a time that's infused with great significance, a a time where things are turning, fundamental structural things are turning. And we are, I believe, in a kairos moment. And given that it's a kairos moment, I think this is the time for for white Christians, folks like me, to own up to the past, the history of the white church here in America. Uh, this is the time. Uh, while, while the curtain's being torn back and people's eyes are being opened and the, there's a sense of the ground being shifted, there's a sense that we are in this kairos moment, this is the time for the church to come clean. We've got to get at the root of this thing and confess that, that the white church on the whole, thank God for the wonderful exceptions, but on the whole, has not loved the neighbor, has not discipled people into loving neighbors as themselves, has not discipled people into xenophilia. It's instead installed xenophobia, fear of the other. The white church, let's confess it, did not take seriously half of the reason why Jesus died. We were happy preaching individual salvation, but when it came to the other reason for which Jesus died, to create this one new humanity, uh, on the whole, the white church has just had been deaf, mute, blind, couldn't see it. And we have to confess that the failure of the church to do this, the failure of the white church to believe the Bible, uh, to really trust in the atonement, the full atonement, the failure of the white church to do that has in large part, to a significant degree, been the, the reason why we've had the ugly history of uh, racism that we have in this country. Um, if, as Christy said, in, so that was, <laughs> that was a great testimony you gave during the worship set. Um, and had the church, even a fraction of the white church, took in, taken seriously this one new humanity that Jesus died for, if a fraction of the white church had really taken seriously that we're supposed to love the neighbor as ourselves, if a fraction of the white church had committed to living out Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us, we're supposed to do unto others as he's done unto us. If, if the white church had done that, the whole slavery, white supremacist system could not have gotten off the ground. If we were believing the Bible, following Jesus, taking God's word at, 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 at its face value, uh, it never, the church could never become complicit in the restructuring that kept blacks out of power after the Civil War, the KKK, and all the other monstrous things that white folks have systematically done to keep people out of power. Redlining, all the rest. It never could have happened. And so we have to say that this is on us. This is on us. Uh, and the result of our, our if you've ever wondered why, if theology is important, I hope this message is driving this home. Bad theology has really, really bad consequences. And one of the bad consequences of our bad theology is that we've had this history of bloodshed and bondage and slavery. Uh, we have to confess that the white church as a whole, has failed to give God's word more credibility than what seems self-evidently true to them. The truth is, is that what seems self-evidently true to them drove their interpretation of the Bible as Frederick Douglass so easily pointed out. The church was held captive by a false ideology, by a lie, by a demonic lie. And a lie is about white supremacy. I, I need to say this, that um, we, we have... 
the result of this is that we have been feeding the beast of white supremacy for 400 years in this country. Um, every racist act feeds that beast. And it is, I think, the dominant principality in power, the stronghold in this, this land. We'll be talking more about that in, in, in future messages. We've been feeding this beast. I believe, I hope at least, that God is using the, 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 the hatred in slow motion, that diabolical clarity of George Floyd's slow, torturous murder. God's using this, I believe, to poke a fatal wound, or at least a very deep wound, into that beast that we've been feeding for 200 years. And it's time for the white church to start helping with that dagger. Our battle ultimately is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's time to bring that beast down. Uh, and it starts with the white church confessing that it is responsible for this. Now, I need to say this because as a white person, I know how white people think generally, and, and we tend to think individualistic, individualistically, much more so than, than, than non-white folks, especially in the system that we're in. It is to our advantage to think individually. And so we don't tend not to notice the forest through the trees, and this is why we tend to like just go after the individual cops, and we don't see the system. Um, and I say that to say this, that, that some might take this personally, like they think I'm, I'm, I'm accusing you of being a, a racist or individually. Here's the thing. I, I'm not saying that I, I don't feel guilty for what my forefathers did. I, I, I have to, I don't feel guilty for that. I think we're only morally culpable for that which we could have done differently, and I couldn't have any effect on that. Still, and here's the really important point to uh, ask my white sisters and brothers to absorb this point, because this is what so many miss. Um, I can think of myself as an island, you know, just Greg Boyd, here I am. Just, but the truth is that my whiteness, it has meaning. It, it, it means something. And the meaning is infused by the history. And the history is ugly. And I have to be real with that. Same thing with being a white Christian. I'm a white Christian. But that means that I, what it means to be white and what it means to be Christian in this land, that baggage is with me. And, and, and so that's why it means something when a person, a white representative of the white church, confesses this culpability and asks for forgiveness for it um, because it is on us. I hope you can see. I hope, I hope every, I, I've tried as clear as I can here, and I've only touched on really one verse. Could go a whole lot more. But this call for reconciliation, race conciliation, this call to be united with our black and brown sisters and brothers, this call to dismantle the white supremacy of the system, this call to work for uh, a better manifestation of the one humanity in which all are equal. That call, it's not a liberal thing, a Democrat thing, a tree-hugging thing, a, a virtue-signaling thing, an identity politics thing, or whatever other thing you might call it. It's a Jesus thing. I, I hope you can see that. It's a Bible thing. It's a God's word kind of a thing. It's a justice thing. It's an equality thing. It's an image of God thing. It's as biblical as it gets. Jesus died for this. He spilled blood for this. And that means it's non-negotiable. To refrain from preaching this. Okay, I'm going to stand up now. Uh, to refrain from preaching this. If Jesus died for it, if Jesus died for it, then that means that uh, it's right up there with preaching the forgiveness of sins. He did die to solve this relationship that we'd be forgiven and, and, and be reconciled with God, yes. But he also died for this. To if you think you can preach the one without the other, you're kidding yourself. That, that's a half a gospel. That's half good news. Uh, no, no. 
This is right up there with forgiveness of sins. To refrain from preaching about reconciliation and the call for that, and the church is called to be that, to refrain from that is as heretical as if you were to refrain from preaching the forgiveness of sins. Which means you couldn't really, you couldn't get a worse heresy. This is the center of the center. Uh, to strike out on this is to strike out. Um, and that's why I would say that the, the ultimate, the biggest cause of the sad history that we've had has been this lacuna, this absence, this refraining in the white church, not seeing this. The time is now. Time for that to stop is now. The time to, to, time to get out of the system, to call out, to lay the, the axe to the root of the tree is now. This is the time. The curtain's being pulled back. I don't think it will get clearer than this. But whether, what happens now, I know what God is going to be up to, but whether it goes anywhere or not, it's going to be, it depends on what we will do now. What, where do we go from here? And in particular, I want to be asking the question, where do white Christians go from here? Um, are we just going to forget about it, write it off as a one-off event? Or will we repent of the stance that has been held by much of the white church throughout its history? Repent of that, turn, and then in step with our black and brown sisters and brothers and following their lead on these matters, uh, will we begin to walk to, together to dismantle this white supremacist system to bring about more justice, bring about a world in which black kids can grow up as feeling as secure as the white kids. Um, chew on that. Chew on that. Take it to heart. Take it in prayer. I'm now going to ask uh, Oshita Moore and Dylan Smith to come up here and join me for a little talk. Uh, we're going to dialogue about a few things here. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with this, I, but uh, we'll work it out. Thank you. Uh, wait, 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 wait. I want to have that. I want everyone to notice that I did not spill my water this week. Uh, that's the first time in two weeks, three weeks that I've not done that. So, yes, yeah, thank you. More applause, please. I want to hear it. Woo-woo! Go, Greg. I didn't spill the water. You're not a klutz. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, I am a klutz. But, but I get my life from Jesus Christ, and so, uh, you know, I'm okay with that. I, I'm okay with that. Thanks so much, you guys, for, for being here uh, and just for this little discussion. Um, I, mean, I kind of want to ask, start off by asking a question we asked last week, uh, and that's, how are you guys doing? Uh, it's, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Last week feels like a year ago to me. Does it, it, it feel like that to you? It feels... Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So how are you guys doing? Uh, what's, how are you processing this? You go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in a better place than I was last week, I would say. Um, <clears throat> I, I, one of the first things I think about is I'm a little more comfortable on stage yes. with these chairs <laughs> than we were last week. Better, on, easier on the bumble. A little, yeah, a little easier. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you're right. It seems like it was it was so long ago. It was just a week ago. But um, I was in I wasn't in a, in a good place, as I mentioned. You know, um, kind of you know like, like a, at a loss, and um, you know not having much hope. But um, I'm in a much better place this week. You know, um, one of the things I, I, I try to do, and I'm not always great at it, but I try to see God working mm -hmm. in everything, you know. Um, and, you know, the Bible talks about, um, you know, all things work together for the good. And um, so one of the things I'm seeing, and I actually heard someone speak about this, was um, we have a couple of things going on. We have the coronavirus going on. Yeah. And then we have the George Floyd um, situation and whatnot. Um, and... Um, those, those are some really bad things. But the good that I've been able to pull out of that is the fact that um, white folks are stuck at home and they, 
so when this George Floyd thing happened, they had nowhere to go. They couldn't go to the mall. They couldn't go to the movies. They had to sit there and deal with what was happening in front mm -hmm. of them. Um, and so that's given me a, some hope um, that <clears throat> we're going to have a lot more people who are focused in on this because they don't have anywhere else to focus on. Now that is really, and so that puts me in a in a little bit uh, better place this week. Huh? That's just a, a insight I want to chew on for a second here, or at least think about. That it, it, so it, what could have contributed to this mm -hmm. is that there's not as many distractions for white folks to get involved in and forget about what they just saw. Absolutely. Uh, that's that, that's an interesting. That's an interesting observation. Okay, I'm glad you're doing better. Yeah. Yes. Much better. Oshida. Wow. That is, that is interesting. I, 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 I think there's something true about that. I, I it's know. Like, I had to sit on that. I want to admit it, but I think he's right. I think you're right. It's like. Oh man. Um, I'm a, I'm actually uh, I'm I'm still tired, but um, I'm hopeful, and I think a huge part of my hopefulness is coming from. You know, you were talking about like white people's responsibility and white people responding to this. And part of my hopefulness is coming from, I'm seeing so many of my white friends who never wanted to talk about race before, who felt ashamed or too scared to, ha to start that conversation, come to me and say like, hey, I wanna, I wanna know a little more. Um, I have some amazing friends who, ha who happen to be white who are like, this is exhausting for you. Like, how can I take care of you? you? Like your actual mm. body, your actual family, like, um, and so I just have seen this, this influx of love mm. in, in response to this, what you said was eight min minutes of hate, slow hate, um, that makes me really hopeful that, you know, when we talk about like we're made in the image of God and we talk about that we, we want to be beloved and we want to love others as Christ has loved us, like I'm seeing white people say like, I, I want to do that in response to this. How can mm -hmm. I be the most loving? And what are my loving actions right now? And that is really encouraging. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Well, praise God. That's, that's uh, I, I, I would share with you, I, I'm in a better place than I was last week and the week before, which isn't saying much, but, uh, but uh, yeah, the, uh, just the, the, the buy-in has been beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. I've been having some conversations with white pastors who, um, I'll tell you this, I, I, there are some very nervous white pastors now, and I, I, I get it. It's because they maybe see this uh, and they uh, want to push the envelope a little bit, but they're getting pushed back from the board or for, you know, they got to tiptoe because they don't want to lose, you know, yeah. givers or whatever. Uh, in some cases, they're, they're uh, uh, getting criticized for saying too much, for pushing it too hard. I know a pastor who's... Uh, in fact, I have two pastors who may lose their jobs this week uh, mm -hmm. because of the stances they're taking. And uh, others are, are uh, um, they have folks saying, why aren't you weighing in on this? I'm getting some emails from, like, how come my pastor's not, like, saying it strong? And I, I, I feel for them. I just remind them, of, like I said last week, that this is the time to count the cost. And uh, if you're going to lose your job out for some reason, this is a good reason to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, yeah. uh, that's good. Um, how, how, Oshida, I know that you are, um, uh, Anabaptist through and through. Yeah. UNTC, you're, you're true blue Anabaptist, and I, I, I love that about you. Um, but that, I have found that being an Anabaptist creates a certain awkwardness that I, I'm still not quite uh, have sure footing on. And that's that on the one hand, like it really, I begin to really feel it uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, where um, I went to the, a, a, the memorial for Philando Castile, and, and that was like the first 
protest I'd ever joined. And I, I just want to go kind of as a vigil and, and be there. But uh, some folks were really angry and they were saying some nasty stuff. And then you've got some folks, I don't know if they're part of the Black Lives Matter movement or they came in from the outside, but they were throwing bottles and all this other kind of stuff. And as an Anabaptist, I'm committed to nonviolence and committed to love our enemies and all that. And so I'm like, is this of God or not? Is, is this, you know, and, and I, am, I, am I condoning that by participating in this? Uh, how do you, as a true blue Anabaptist, parse that out? How do you do that dance? <laughs> and I know a lot of folks watching are asking that question. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I'm a true blue Anabaptist here at Woodland Hills is because we are Anabaptists who deeply believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think that part of discerning whether or not you engage in these kind of things is really listening to the Spirit. Um, but also for me, like, as an Anabaptist, like we believe in nonviolence. Why do we believe in nonviolence? Because we believe that every single person is made in the image of God and we want to value their life and, and, and their bodies. And, and so for me, I, to, as an Anabaptist first, I step back and instead of looking at all of, like, instead of judging what's going on in those rallies, the very first thing that I do is I ask God to give me eyes to see the humanity about like what's going on in those spaces. Um, Nahira Wahid, a black poet, says that um, anger is often grief that has been silent for too long. Wow. And so if as... Say, say, can you say that again? Anger is often grief that has been silent for too long. Oh. And so when I look at these rallies or I look at these protests or I look at the looting, my initial reaction is says, oh, that looks violent, so I don't want to engage with that. But I think that we can engage with it first by having, asking the Lord to give us a deep compassion and say, like, I may not condone what's going on over there, but I am recognizing that this is a massive outcry of pain. And then I think because of the Holy Spirit, we have a responsibility to look for that creative third way. Yeah. So maybe it looks like we go to the rally, but we are a presence of peace. Or maybe it looks like we go to the rally organizers and, and, and help them think about how they can be more organized to prevent things from getting out of hand. Maybe that looks like we go in force and we stand and we pray during that rally. So it, you may not... It's not either or, like I don't get, I, I can hold back and I don't go to this rally or I go and I participate in everything that's going on there. Maybe we go with the implicit goal of being a presence of peace where we know there will be chaos and potential violence. And then I also feel like um, there's something I wanted to read that, that I think might give us a little bit of insight that I think maybe some white people don't get. I love it. Um, so uh, Terry Gross on her podcast, Fresh Air, talked to Wes Moore um, and I found this from an Instagram account called Black Coffee with White Friends, which is a great resource to go look at. And so Terry Gross is talking to Wes Moore, who spent five days in Baltimore after, all, after Freddie Gray's deaths. And there was, there was protests and looting. And so Terry Gross says to him, there's a sentence in your book, Five Days, which is his book, that I want to read. And this is after the protests and after the unrest and after the looting in Baltimore following Freddie Gray's death. And so Gross goes on to say, as you write, it was hard to tell which of the wrecked stores and row houses had been looted or burned that week and which had been falling apart for decades. And he says, and she goes on to say, what does that tell you about the sense of hopelessness in that community? And so Westmore responds to her and says, what it's showing to me is that the frustration that people are facing, it's multi-layered. The frustration that people are feeling is about much more than just a single incident. 
It's about the conditions that people are being asked to endure. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's a part, there's a compassion that I'm asking white people as they're watching this to enter into to say, what is that long-term pain and suffering that the black community, black and brown community has been asked to endure? And is this just an outcry, like that grief that has been silent for too mm -hmm. long? That's good, that's good. Want to add yeah. in that? No, I, <laughs> much no I think she hit it on the, on the head. I have yeah, a, yeah. nothing to add to that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, what helped me get it over a little bit was, was when, I, when I thought about Jesus, how you know, in Luke it says that he hung out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and that ruined his reputation. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. among the religious high and mighties, he was the drunkard, the womanizer, the birds of a feather flock together, and yet Jesus was, love trumped uh, his, his concern about the purity of his reputation. And, and uh, I just got to thinking that I was kind of having this white privilege thing where it's like, I don't want to taint, you know, the gospel mm. by appearing to condone violence. Uh, but, but that's kind of, you know, all or nothing thinking that I think is not third way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, being there. Martin Luther King said that, you know, you don't have to condone violence, but you have to understand it. Mm -hmm. and otherwise, it's just going to be re repeating itself. Yeah. Can I go, take the thought a little further? Sure. If... Uh, I mean, one of the things I really learned from you several months ago was a new level of complexity in this, even to the point of, um, like, for example, uh, the loving, uh, when, when you see the police put down their arms and, and embrace uh, marchers, uh, or like forgiving, one of the things I haven't done publicly yet, uh, I have in private, but I pray for uh, ex-officer Chauvin. I think we are called to pray and love our enemies mm -hmm. and, and those who you know, make themselves like this, precisely because no one else is doing that. You know, and, and, but that, even that, which is so, it seems so unambiguously biblical, there's a complexity to it, isn't there? Mm -hmm. uh, can you flesh out like, what that was? Like, why, why that is, uh, could be problematic given the history of, of this racism in our church? <laughs> Did I, did I just uh, <laughs> put my uh, stick in a hornet's nest? <laughs> it is. Well, you have to go uh, through the whole thing. But no, I, I, I hear what you're saying because th that impulse is in me too. Um, I think I even wrote something not like short, like when uh, Derek Chauvin was arrested about how I've just been thinking about those four officers and what they're going through and what it must be like for them to have witnessed death like that close. And what does that do to our psyche? What does that do to their dreams? What does that right, do right. to their, what, what is all this doing their, their family? And, and I honestly think that if, if we're gonna be Anabaptists, we gotta be okay with ticking off both sides. Like no, yep. we're no, nobody's gonna love yeah. us all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, again, listening to the spirit, there are times when it's appropriate to say, um, you know, I'm praying for, I'm praying for these guys, and there, maybe there are times that are not appropriate. I think right now, the most appropriate thing is to pay attention to the biggest pain, because there's layers of pain, right? Right, right, right. And so right now, the biggest pain is this ancient pain, this root to the tree, if you say, yeah. as you say, of the black and brown community saying, like, are you serious? Like, like again? And, right, we're, right. and so I think the most pastoral and loving thing that we can do right now is pay attention to that pain, but also holding... That, that tenderness towards those officers because when they woke up this morning, God was happy yep, yep. and their beloved too. Yeah. And so I just think that there's a, there's, a, there's a wisdom as leaders that we have to have to pay attention to the biggest pain, but also not allow ourselves to have our hearts hardened towards uh, yeah. them. 
yeah. and that's just, that's just it's, it's, that's just the Anabaptist good. dance. You know? that's, see, it, it would uh, it would have never occurred to me. Like Al Sharpton said, that there's a time and a season for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, the time when it's appropriate, and and love and and it requires us to be sensitive to that. Um, but it, it never would have occurred to me uh, that that even saying let's pray for our enemies. Uh, you know, we have to love our enemies. That that can, given the history where that has been used as an excuse to not address any of the issues. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I mean when I say that as a white person, I have to be aware that I come with baggage. We all and, come with baggage, but here's my baggage. And it's going to sound different from me saying I'm praying for them yes. than it will for you. Right. Because if you say I'm praying for them, then it may mm. seem like you are going to be, you're, you're speaking, you're protecting the system from which you benefit. Mm. Exactly. But if me as a person of color say, mm-hmm. you know, I'm angry, I'm scared, I'm tired of this but I still recognize that they're image bearers and I'm praying for them. That has like a kingdom, in, like a kingdom invasion, mm-hmm. like yeah, that good. brings, that changes the whole conversation. Yeah, that's, that's, point. that's, uh, that's really good. That's uh, good point. Yeah. Uh, that's, and one of the things that, that I, I know for a lot of white Christians, um, they can take offense to that and they have. Uh, I've gotten emails on that. Like, how can you, you know, this, Right out of the gate, this should be, the, this is what Jesus did. Forgive, love your enemies. Mm-hmm. But that'd be like, imagine like you're grieving this and you have this. And if I were to come to you and say, you need to forgive him. And the Bible says you got to forgive him. There'll be a point for that, but it's got to be down the road. Yeah. You know, first cast to do is this lament and you got to own it. If mm-hmm. the forgiveness is cheap, if, it, if it's not forgiveness of, with a full awareness of what you're, you know, the crime that's being forgiven. Yeah. So. Well, I'm just going to say this one more thing. As a parent. <laughs> we keep doing that. Because <laughs> I know. As Adela, a parent, we're, we're, I'm going to ask you a question. Here. I'm still here. I'm still here. Yeah. As Are you a, enjoying as this? As a parent, like if my kid came to me and was like, my, your, my sister hit me. And I was just like, well, go forgive her. Like that is not justice. That's not dealing with what's going on in his sister's life that, that would cause her to hit her. Right, him. right. So for me, I deal with the child that did something wrong first. And then once, once I've noticed, once that child is repentant or like I've dealt with that, now I can start doing that reconciliation work. Sure of saying, mm-hmm. okay, so I need you to go apologize to your sibling. Okay, this. and now how are you guys going to play together going forward? Like, so we are, the thing about, the thing for white people I want them to understand is you have the skill set to do this work. You've been doing it in all these other parts of your life. Mm-hmm. And I just need for you to now think about like laser focusing that around race and justice. All right, sorry, yeah. d Boom. <laughs> boom, boom. Hey, d one of the things that uh, came out of the funeral, but it's been a motif, uh, yeah. a, a, at least among uh, church pastors and, and, and others in this time has been that um, we've got to do this together. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, it's not like black and brown people need white people to save them. They mm-hmm. don't need that. Right, right. Uh, they just need to get the knee off the neck, like, yeah. like Reverend L. Sharpton said. And, and, but it's going to take collaboration on this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that presents its own kind of challenges. And I wondered if you would like to say, both of you, uh, but share a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I did get a chance to see uh, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton preach. I thought it was, I thought it was powerful. You, oh, um, and, and you're right. We, we're, um, us in the black community, we're not asking for any favors. <laughs> we don't you know, need anything like that. Um, we just need to be allowed to live. Um, but when I think about like, you know, obstacles to this, and you spoke about uh, um, you know, one of the things I want to point out in your sermon. Um, so in my studies, I've, I've, I've learned that about 80% of the, the world lives with a, like a collectivist mindset. And 20% of the world lives with an individualistic mindset. Hmm. And guess what part of, <laughs> guess where, where America lands on that one, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so um, we, we have to be able to um, understand that all things are connected. 
Um, I mean, the um, understanding that like we could look at um, uh, former Officer Chauvin and his actions as something that he did, but we had to understand there's a connected connectedness there that led to that particular moment happening. Right. And so, um, you know, um, like we said, um, America and, and, and the more specific white folks really think individualistically. And um, we need to be more on a communal stance as far as, you know, what sin, sure. uh, our relationship with God. Um, those need to be more on a communal stance. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the obstacles is getting, getting past that piece. I think the other, uh, another obstacle I think about is just segregation, mm. you know? Um, we always talk about, you know, Sunday morning is the most segregated time, <laughs> you know, in America, and, and, and it's true. And, um, you know, I've been in black churches, um, and I, you know, I come from an all-black church for the most part, and we've, we've had some courageous white people come and actually be members of the church. But that's not happening enough. Um, and then we have the crossover where black folks will come over to, to the white church. And I can tell you, um, for me, I came from an all black church and I was there for 30 something years. Um, but um, this is actually my, my wife who was a courageous one to, to get us to Woodland Hills, but I was, you know, obedient and followed <laughs> um, but it was it was it was tough the, the the my first however long of a time it was tough for me to, to 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 be here because it was so different than what I was used to but I've grown tremendously in my time here and so you know we got to get over that obstacle of being in our comfort zones um, and, and you speak about it all the time. That's one of the reasons I, I love being a, a member of this church. But for, for my for my like my white brothers and sisters, how often have you gotten out of the, your bubble? How, how often have you gotten out of your comfort zone and gone to other places? Yes. And, you know, when when um, um, we as black folks, we have to do that all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, whether it's school, our kids have to go to schools that are predominantly white. If we want to go to uh, I don't know, like a five-star restaurant or whatnot. It's gonna be, it's gonna be all white when we walk in that place. And um, so we, we, we've been conditioned to put aside, in, uh, you know, some of our anxieties, and just go experience. And and that's a thing I see that's um, an obstacle for many of my white brothers and sisters is getting outside of that bubble, getting outside of that uh, um, your comfort zone, and um, and congregating with people that don't look like you. Mm -hmm. I, I heard, uh, read uh, folks who said that um, uh, people, non-white folks in America, they, you have to be multicultural. Yeah. Uh, you've got to navigate white culture because it's a dominant culture. You've got your own and then there's you know, all the others. Yeah. Whereas white folks can, if they, if they want to be in a bubble, they get to do that. Yeah. You know, they, they, mm -hmm. and, and, um, and they can float in this privileged you know, sphere mm -hmm. without knowing it because they don't bump into any other stuff that, that's, that, that's beneath mm -hmm. them. And because of that, it seems to me that they're conditioned to always getting their way, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, which when they don't get their way, then they move on, yeah. um, which is, this is the problem because, uh, I think as you said, uh, it, it, to come together means there's going to have to be a blending of cultures. You're yeah. going to have to stretch, like with the worship music. You're going to have to learn how to like songs that maybe you wouldn't naturally like. Yes. Uh, but that's the cost, you know. And so the question is, of will white people, are they going to be willing to pay that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, the last thing I, I'll kind of jump on that is that's 
that's how Jesus did it. You know, he was our example. He came to show us how to do things. Yeah, and um, he held, you know, the least of these, he held them in high esteem. Mm -hmm. You know, those were the ones that he, you know, used as examples that he lifted up and that's things cool. like that. And so if, we, if we're really talking about living a life that's Christ-like, that looks like Jesus, we, we, can't, we can't sit around um, and just live our lives with people who look like us, think like us, and speak like us. We, right. we just can't. Jesus went out of his way to go through Samaria to meet that Samaritan yeah, absolutely. woman. Absolutely. Yep. Sheila, you want to add anything? Well, the only thing I would add to it is I think that for most black and brown people, we're, we're highly aware of systems and, and uh, collective, like we're, we're aware of that. Um, where I feel like a lot of white people are just really aware of like individual, like their individual posture, their individual actions. And so when I look at an organization or like I look at a church, I'm looking to see, are they approaching race from an individual posture or are they approaching race from a system, like a, with a systemic mm. mindset? And that looks like, are they putting black and brown people in spaces of leadership? And am I seeing their leadership influence the way that the church is preaching and mm. teaching and mm -hmm. doing their music and doing their arts? Um, right. Or do they have people of color in positions of leadership, but I just, you, it, it would look just like another church that had right. no people of color yeah. in leadership. Okay. And so, because I think when I see that, then I'm like, oh, that church is thinking about race from like, we have to uproot some systematic ways that we have been doing things by allowing voices of color and leadership to yeah. change that direction, as opposed to, oh, we just wanna be a church that, that has diversity and talk about race as our own personal posture and like we would never t we would never hate or have be prejudiced another against another mm -hmm. person but that's not enough like right. what we need right now what we're all seeing is that the root of the tree is a sy our systems that need to be completely dismantled right, right. and so i think that's maybe one of the reasons why a black person would look at a, a church know it's predominantly white maybe will love a lot of things in it but wouldn't feel comfortable because the thing that's always in the back of my mind i will tell you is I know that there's going to be another racially charged thing in the news. It may not mm -hmm. be the death of a, another black man. Right, I hope right. it's not another death, but it might be something like teens yelling in the face of indigenous chieftains, or mm -hmm. it, might be, it might be a kid who has to have his dreads cut, or there will be something yeah. that is racially charged. And I need to know that when I go to Sunday, after finding out what happened in the news on Friday, that that pastor's going to say something about it. Mm -hmm. Because I need to know that the God that I am worshiping cares about the pain that I'm suffering, sure. and that's my pastor who is leading, who is leading right, us right. and guiding us. Absolutely. And that only happens when, like at Woodland, where there are pastors, white pastors, who are willing to uproot these systems by really listening to people mm -hmm. of color. And I think because white folks tend to be individualistic thinking, this is the challenge, is to have patience enough to walk in step with other folks to begin to see something that they're not conditioned usually to see, and that's the systems. It seems to me that's kind of the difference between like diversity training and reconciliation. Diversity training is like individual, here's what you say when you, how the right way to say things or, you know, yeah. uh, but that's not at all reconciliation. It seems to me that, I'm talking too much here, but, Minnesota, like you said last week, Minnesota, we're, what, number one in the uh, edu education of white students and bottom in the education of black students. Yeah. This is incredible. I've also heard that we are, we're increasingly diverse, but we are almost completely segregated. Yeah. In fact, I, I didn't know that. I, my wife and I watched this, this uh, film uh, last night 
It's called uh, Jim Crow of the North. I'd really recommend it. It's, it's incredible. It's part of the Minnesota Experience uh, series. Mm-hmm. It's like episode 27, whatever. But redlining originated here hmm. in 1909. And, and then from there it went on and became a practice throughout. That's the whole thing of where they had these race covenants where they agreed that this area we're going to sell to white folks. You know, they had these quarantine. And so everyone else gets, you know, blocked off and segregated and quarantined into areas. And then mm-hmm. when we need a highway, we just drive it right through them. Uh, that's here. So in some ways, Minnesota is symbolic. In, in, of, of, we're supposed to be this progressive country, mm-hmm. but or this progressive state. Mm-hmm. We ain't that progressive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we, it's just beneath the surface. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you have, uh, final reflections. Like, where, where where do we go from here? Any thoughts about uh, next step? Yeah, I would. Um, and 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 I, and I see some of it happening, and it's encouraging. Um, I don't know if I spoke about this, but I, I joined Facebook like a month ago. Because um, I God bless you. I've, yeah, I've always despised it, but I, I despise it a little less because <laughs> I'm, I'm there now. So, <laughs> but I see, you know, some good things happening there. And I, I say, like, you know, uh, going forward, one of the things that we have to do, um, uh, um, and I would encourage my, my, my white brothers and sisters to do, is to um, not be afraid to say what's on your mind. Mm. Um, you know, mm. There's a good chance you might catch some backlash. I mean, it just happened with Drew Brees this week. He said what was on his mind and boom, boom, boom. Um, But um, the reason why I say don't be afraid to say what's on your mind is because we, you need the opportunity for people to educate you about what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And the biggest fear I have is that through this process that my white brothers and sisters will not say what they're really thinking and they'll continue to hold on to mm. those thoughts and to those ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way that we can let go of that is for that to be challenged. Um, and, I'll, and, then, and then I'll go to, um, I, I want to talk to my um, brothers and sisters of color, is when you challenge white folks, do it with grace. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to shut white people down from talking um, and from saying what's on their mind. Because like I said, that allows them to continue to hold those beliefs and hold those thoughts. But when we can challenge those things, have some good conversation about those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chrissy spoke about it. Um, you know, the conversation that we had, um, you know, before this Sunday around things, um, I thought was, uh, was just great. And I really thank her for that, for be, having the courage to say what was really on her mind um, and allow me to step into that and say, well, here's my perspective on that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we're going to get there yeah. is through the conversation. But if we are not having the conversation because either we're afraid to say what's, what, what's on our mind or we've said something and we've been shut down by that, um, we're, we're really going to slow mm-hmm. down the process um, as far as getting to this uh, race reconciliation and, and, and living more Christ-like. But that has, I imagine that's, that's challenging sometimes mm-hmm. uh, when you are talking to somebody who is clueless and maybe says offensive things. I yeah. mean, that's, Very that's part so. of bleeding for the kingdom, I guess. <laughs> it's like, Very much so. Yeah. Uh, Oshida, do you have anyone yeah. to add to that? Yeah, that is a challenge. Um, well, there's a couple things I would say. The first is I really am a big, big encourager for white people when you're on this journey you are gonna have a lot of emotions and it's going to feel really uncomfortable a lot of the time. And I think that it's really important for you to have like a white 
partner or a white, like a white accountability system where you're all kind of going through this work together. So you can be together and kind of have those emotions and call out those emotions and kind of work through that. Um, because oftentimes what happens when a white person will come to me with all of their questions, they, there's also this layer of like emotionality to it that I have to, have to deal with that in order to get to the, the bottom piece. And, um, and so I, I think it's really important for you to have spaces where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this and I wanna process it first before I go talk to a black person. I plan on going to talk to pro talk process it with a black person, but I, I kinda need to like get past the shame first, so it's not their responsibility to make me feel good about myself before then I, mm -hmm. they have to educate me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's, one, that's a really important, Surge is an organization that like creates resources and invites white people into those kind of spaces to say like, let's have a conversation as white people about this. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing is, oh my gosh, guys, okay, listen, we're, we're a nerdy church. Like we, we, like we are nerdy people, we love to learn. And I have talked to so many people that have said, I've bought these five books and I joined this e-course and I'm watching this YouTube channel and they're just inundated with so much knowledge. Like next week, they're gonna be so fraught, like race fatigue. They're gonna be mm. so over hearing and talking about race. I need for all of us to realize that this is a marathon mm, yeah. and not a sprint. Mm -hmm. that, our, and that our black brothers and sisters have been doing this work for so long mm -hmm. and now it's your turn to like pick it up and start doing, but you gotta have a long, long haul, long mm -hmm. end goal. Like, and so that means I need you to think about self-care. I need you to figure out if what you're doing right now is sustainable. I need you to take it one step at a time mm -hmm. and, and know that every step is leading towards peace. Mm -hmm. It's not, just because it's small doesn't mean it's in, ineffective. Yeah. And so I just need for white people to not lean into that. What's like, what's the most effective thing I can do right now? Like, mm -hmm. like Bruxy Cavi says, love is the most inefficient thing you'll ever do. And this is a, an intense practice of love. Yeah. Can, I, wow. can I add one more to that? Oh, yeah. Feel free. Yeah. Um, no, I thought that was good. Good. Um, so like, yeah, so in education, we actually, um, this comes from uh, um, Gene Singleton. It's a, it's a protocol for talking about race, and I, I, I think that might be helpful. So it's four things, um, and um, I might have them out of order, but they, they all matter. Um, We're graceful, we'll, we'll, yeah, you know, yeah. we'll catch up <laughs> um, But the first thing is to speak your truth, and that's what I was saying to, to white folks, speak your truth, um, what it means to you. Um, so um, not being afraid to do that. Staying engaged is the second one. Um, we gotta be able to stay engaged, and that's been a big problem right now is something happens, we're in it for a minute, and we're off to something else. Stay engaged in what's happening right now. Um, the third thing is to um, experience discomfort. You know, it's gonna be uncomfortable. We never grow from things that are easy. We grow Amen. from pain. That's right. Um, and so, um, being able to, to, to be uncomfortable about conversations about race, uncomfortable about what you're seeing, and allow yourself to sit in that. Yeah. And, okay. to, and then the last thing um, that we talk about is um, expect non-closure. Um, you know, this thing, uh, we didn't get here um, instantly. This was years and years and years and years centuries. Of, of centuries of things um, that got us to this point and it's going to take time to, 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 to get rid of this. Now, one of the things I can tell you as a black man is I don't have a ton of patience. Okay, so let's not go too slow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but 
understand that we're not going to solve that. next week. Right. <laughs> we're not going to solve that problem today. This panel's right. not going right. to solve that problem today. Yeah. Um, we're going to leave here today with some non-closure. And we have to expect that that's going to happen, and we have to be okay with that. But then we have to continue to have this conversation. It's a marathon. Conversation. It's a marathon. 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 And That's you know sprint. something about that, Greg. He used to run. Oh, back in the day. Back in the day. <laughs> uh, Oshita, would you uh, close this prayer? Sure. Before I do that, I just want to highlight a few things. At Woodland, we are really passionate about continuing to be a part of that long haul. We're committed to it. And so we have, um, we are supporting Transform Minnesota. They, there's, I think on our website, there's a link to all of the ways that they are locally here in Minnesota helping to address race and kind of help even rebuild and clean up and do mm -hmm. things from all that has happened in our city yes. turmoil. So for those of you who are who are ready, who want to go out and the way that you love is by your with your hands, um, that's a good space for you to go. And then um, we as a church have committed to giving to Transform Minnesota's One Fund. Um, we have a goal of $25,000. Can you explain One Fund? Well, why don't you explain it? Because I think you know a little bit more about it than I, I do. One Fund is just this uh, thing that was set up uh, to the coronavirus has really revealed the disparities and living conditions and medical treatment for, for, for different folks. And, and so uh, the, the African-American churches have been hit harder uh, from this COVID uh, thing, black and brown churches. And so this is just based on a biblical precedent in 2 Corinthians when Paul raises money for the church in uh, Jerusalem that's going through a famine, mm. and he does it for the people over there in Greece, even though these folks don't know each other. Yeah. And, but it's the idea that in the body of Christ, there ought to be a striving for equality. Yeah. And so this is a way of, of giving to help out churches that have been uh, disproportionately hurt in this uh, pandemic. Yeah. So if, that's, if you are feeling moved to, to engage, these are some places you can. If you want to stay connected to Woodland and you want to continue this conversation, there are a few places for you to do that. The first is our gathering groups. And then the other one is um, on Tuesdays, there is something called the MuseCast, where I'm with Shauna Bourne and really Dan Kent. And we continue the conversation where we go, go a little bit deeper. Um, and then also, we know that you have come to our time together ready to fully worship God, but maybe you brought some things into your time and you would love prayer. Maybe something Greg said is really stirred in you and you'd like to meet with somebody and pray. We have um, prayer warriors waiting in Zoom rooms for you to meet with you and pray with you. So uh, stay tuned and um, avail yourself to that, that connection and that support if that's what you need. Amen. So let me go ahead and close us in prayer. Beautiful. All right. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for this time where we got to be together and sort of center our, our identity, our worth around who you say we are, and then be immobilized and energized to go and, and proclaim that in the world. Thank you for Greg's courage to speak about racism. Continue to keep our arms strong as we are hacking away at the root of the tree of white supremacy that is basically just... Um, just a huge violation of the image of God that you have placed in black and brown and indigenous people. And Lord, I pray for every single one of my brothers and sisters as they go forward, that they go forward with a strong conviction of their belovedness and that they go forward with a strong hopefulness that you are with us. And so Lord, we thank you and we love you and we pray your blessings over all of us. Keep us healthy and bring us back together next week. Amen. We miss you, friends. Bye. Then, hey, uh, give, give a warm wool to the hills. Thank you, too. Rashida <laughs> and Dylan, yes. I can hear it. Can you hear that virtual? Hear God bless you guys. See you next week. <laughs>